So I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And we continue this series in Hebrews. And we've established so far some foundations. And the foundations we've established is that Jesus did everything necessary to fulfill the old covenant. He kept the terms. He followed the rules. He paid the price. And he took all the penalties. And what is left for us is not a conditional contract like it was in the old covenant where do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Now, because Christ did good, we receive the blessings of what he earned and paid for. So we don't have a covenant in, the, in terms of we've got terms to fulfill in order to please God. We've got things to do in order to get our prayers answered. We have, a, we have instead a testament. And a testament is received by faith. So that we are receivers, not achievers. We are believers, not achievers. And as we're looking at Hebrews, I want to continue that theme because we're going to start to move into actually how do you access the things that we have been given under that inheritance? Because we need a mind shift that moves us away from pleading with God to do what he's already done to believing God to receive what he's already done. And we need a mind shift that takes us from the point of um, trying to think, well, why isn't God answering my prayers? Is it something I've done? If maybe if I do more of this, more of that, more of this, then he'll answer. God is not holding back. God provided our inheritance 2,000 years ago. And it's unchanging. It depends on what Christ did 2,000 years ago, not on what we're doing now. But we have a responsibility as believers to believe. The word of God will do us no good whatsoever if we do not believe it and act on it. And you know, when we were singing that song and Roger was, was talking at the end of that song, and we were saying about how um, if the world around us is shaking, we have something that is stable a firm foundation in the love of God. And it's that that I'm actually going to talk about this morning. I didn't coordinate with Olive on the song choice, but it's actually that that I'm talking about this morning. Because one thing I've noticed with, with, with believers, one thing I've noticed in the body of Christ is that we are not very good at standing these days. We are okay with our relationship with God when everything around us is hunky-dory. But the minute, the, the minute that something, well, maybe not the minute that something, maybe it will last for a couple of weeks, but the minute it's not going our way, our faith fails us. Now, let me tell you this. We don't have a faith problem. Because when we pray in faith, God answers. What we have is a patience and endurance problem. And in this consumerist society that we have these days, the number one, in fact, probably 99% of prayer goes unanswered because we not, do not endure to see the answer. We are not prepared to wait for answers. And the truth is God's word does not change. And when we pray in faith, he answers. 
But we pray, we don't see an immediate answer, we assume it's not worked for us, and we dig up our prayer again. And that's an understandable model, but it's not a biblical model. You know, when you, you see later on in Hebrews, and I'll preach this in several weeks to come, you see people standing and enduring throughout lifetimes for the promise that had been set before them that was going to come through not them, but their ancestors. Through all the ups and downs, going up, down, all over the place, invasions, turmoil, everything, they stand. And that's, that's the level of believer that God is calling us to be. You know, Jesus said this, this amazing statement, when I come again, will I find faith on earth? Now, a lot of talk is these days about the end times and, and whether we're living in the last days and whether Jesus is coming again soon. Well, the question is, will he find faith on earth when he comes? Because the end times or whatever, what the age we are living in is an age of economic turmoil, political turmoil, change, 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 faster and faster change. It's, it's an age of job insecurity. People have 20 jobs in their lifetime now where they used to only have one. It's an age of technological change. And we have to cultivate and grow a faith that endures. And to do that, I want to start over these coming weeks to start building that foundation. So today, what I'm going to look at, and, and I want you to, to explain this, I'm going to have to explain another legal concept to you. So we've had uh, contracts, we've had wills and testaments, uh, Today, I'm going to explain to you something called a letter of wishes. A letter of wishes. Now, this is a little bit more obscure, but so let me, let me tell you a story that, that should help you explain it. I guess about, it's probably 11 years ago, round about this time of year, um, I was going for a meeting in London. And... Uh, you know how it is when you've got to be there at a meeting on time? Because it was an extremely important meeting of one of my most important clients. In, in fact, the, the client that I still look after their family now. Um, and it was one of those days where the train is late. You know, you, you get, you, the, the traffic's bad getting to Cambridge uh, Station, the train's late, you get into King's Cross late, you find out the underground's not running on the line you want, you've got to get a taxi, there's taxi queues, there's car queues, and you're trying to get there, and it's absolutely pouring down, freezing cold, and there's a howling wind. Have you, do you, you, we've experienced that sort of day in the last week. I know we've had snow as well, but it's that sort of day, and I've got to get to this meeting in London, and... Um, you see, the reason that I had to get there is that what was written on that day would shape how I would advise the family for the next 10 to 20 years. And what we were going to see that day was the writing or, or an understanding of what had been written in something called a letter of wishes. A letter of wishes is what it says it is. It's a letter it isn't legally binding. <laughs> We've got double preaching going on here. <laughs> it's, 
here's what a letter of wishes is. When you write a will, it's got all sorts of provisions in. I give this to this, this to that. For you know, I put this money in trust with trustees and all these sort of things. And a letter of wishes expresses the thinking and heart behind a will. So it's not full of terms. What it is, is an understanding of heart and why I did what I did in my will. Do you get the concept? Why would you want to do that? Well, when you have a will that affects more than one generation or several generations over time, you need to enable the people who were reading that will to be able to interpret it in the light of change. There's things that will happen when you write a will like that you can't foresee. There's change that will take place in society. There's change that will take place in your family. There's, so, you know, some of your family might do amazing. Some of them might go completely off the rails. So there might be economic crashes. The, the, the value of what's left may change. You know, there's all sorts of things that affect wills. I, you know, if you, if you read a will that was written 150 years ago, you'd wonder somehow how you had to play it now. And so the letter of wishes expresses the heart behind what will is. So when, basically the idea is when, they, when people who are administering the will, when they read it, they'll be able to read it in the light of changing circumstances and changing life according to the heart that was behind it when they wrote it. Do you get that? So Hebrews 8, 7 to 13, because this is talking about how this covenant that we have works. And it starts by talking about the old covenant first and why it didn't work um, and what needed to be changed. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, now look at, look at that, just register that. That's not finding fault with the covenant. What that's saying is the purpose of the covenant was that it could only find fault with people. It couldn't do anything about it. It didn't change the person. It just found fault with them. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Um, that includes us because we are now grafted into Israel. We're grafted into their blessings and their promises by faith. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they didn't continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. He's talking there about the covenant of the law because he says it's the one I gave you when you came out of Egypt. So he's talking about the covenant of law. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. None of them will teach his neighbour and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Here's the point that I want you to get. The New Testament covenant that we have with God cannot 
be read as a set of rules. To understand and receive what Christ has done for us, we need to know the heart behind what we were given. We need to know the heart behind our inheritance. The New Testament is about heart and not letter. It's about spirit and not letter. Because the spirit gives life and the letter kills. Now, let me take you back to my story with my client. So my client explained how he had set things up. So he's got, he's got all the family around him. He's got his wife there. There's lawyers there. There's me, the accountant, advisor there. There's uh, four children, uh, four, the children all around about my age. And basically what he said is that, I'll, I'll tell you the gist of it. I'm not giving any client secrets here. Um, but basically, his heart behind the way he'd written his will was that the family should stick together. And that the inheritance was structured in such a way that he hoped would pull them together. So he's saying this, and this is what's written down in, in the letter of wishes. And not fracture them apart. Because what he had seen in other families was how when people got their hands on the money, they just fell out with each other. And he didn't want that for his family. They're, they're, a, they're a close family. They, they, they really do care for each other. Uh, they are believers. They're, certainly the parents are believers. And his heart was for his family to be happy, but also that they would support one another. And because of that, what he had done is he created a, a structure and a way of leaving the money that, that caused them to make decisions about the estate for the future as a family. So he didn't just leave everything, you get that, you get that, you get that, you get that. He left it all in a big pot so that they would take decisions as a family of what, how they would go forward and use that to benefit themselves and benefit future generations. And his aim in that was that the family would stay strong because he loved them. He, he actually uh, died really quickly. He had terminal cancer. And, and so it was, it was not long after that that he died. But this is what he wanted people to understand, that he'd set it up in this way because he wanted them to stay together and not fall out with each other. And so that's how a, a lead of wishes works. Now, what he understood was that the heart behind what he was doing was much more important than the fine legal jargon. So when it came to individual assets that he'd left in that, and, and there, was, there was a lot of money that he'd left and a lot of shares and property and all sorts. When it came to individual assets in that, it was much more important in the change of the change in property market, share values. Um, not long after he died, there was the credit crisis. He was heavily invested in property. And they needed to understand what the heart was behind what they'd been given so that they could deal appropriately and keep that heart without falling out with each other and without uh, been dominated by economic circumstances. Because things change. You know, Jesus left us in inheritance 2,000 years ago. 
And things have changed since then. The world has changed since most of us became Christians. Significantly, massively. The church has changed. I mean, like the organized church, it's changed massively. The way we go about things has changed. But we need to understand God's heart. The purpose of this letter of wishes is not to add rules and obligations. It's to know, help the, the beneficiaries know the heart between, behind leaving the inheritance. Here's the first point. Grace is not like law. You really need to understand that. Because a lot of us still do church like we have this mixed gospel of grace and law and we, we fuddle it all together. And we end up with carrots and sticks. You know, God loves you. He's, he's a father to you. He's, he's passionate about you. He just wants to encircle you in his loving arms. But if you mess up, oh, he's mad with you. He's angry with you. But he loves you. And we get this schizophrenic type approach. Why? Because we're mixing grace and law and we need to understand grace is not like law. It doesn't work in the same way. Grace is not a list of legal provisions. Grace is an inheritance through faith. Under law, what matters is precise words. That's how lawyers get rich, isn't it? They either argue with the precise words or they try to get around the precise words and find loopholes in the precise words. That's how law works. Under grace, what matters is the heart behind the words. And that's, this is, one thing we really need to understand is when God gave us a testament or a covenant of grace, he expected us to behave like big girls and boys, like grown-up people who would basically um, administer and take judgments and decide things in partnership with him about how the kingdom was going to be brought to earth. You can't have that sort of relationship if everything is ground down to a set of rules and a manual. Children have sets of rules. Adults, big girls and boys, are expected to make their own decisions knowing the heart behind those decisions. That's grace. That kind of make, that we, we love that. Like, you know, when we get to 16, 17, 18, we love, like, being able to go off and do things and, and make our own decisions. And, you know, I, even now, you know, Matthew got to 21. I guess he, he's been doing this since he was, well, well before 18. But you can't tell me what to do now because I'm old enough and I make my own decisions. That's grace. Yeah, you are old enough and you do make your own decisions. Because you've been given the status of being a grown-up son or daughter. We're not little children crying on daddy's knee. We're grown-up sons and daughters who 
run the family estate in conjunction with our father. Have you ever thought that? This, this, this world around us is the family estate. We're supposed to be running it in conjunction with our, our father. He just happens to be king, but he's still our father. Now, what's the point of all this? This is the, the real key. God desires that we know his heart. He isn't interested in us following a set of rules. If he was, Jesus would not have had to come. What he's interested in is do we get him? I mean, like, really get him. Really get God. Do we know what makes his heart beat? Do we know what he's passionate about? What he gets excited about? Do, you know, do we know what he's trying to shape around us and through us and with us? Do we, do we know what sort of, uh, uh, probably the wrong face, but gets him up in the morning and gives him joy? Do we know what, what he, he, he wants out of this world? Because if we don't know that, we won't be able to do it. We'll be running around like stupid headless chickens doing all sorts of things, but it, we won't know his heart. And if we don't know his heart, we'll be doing all those things from the wrong place. And when we do those things from the wrong place, people don't encounter the heart of God when they meet us. They encounter a heart of judgment and condemnation and superiority and pride and all sorts of religious stuff but they need to encounter God's heart of love and mercy and forgiveness. We looked last week at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. I'll just read you again. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we've been given exceedingly great and precious promises, so on. So that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. That is massive. Partakers of the divine nature. But what I want you to understand, just I want to look at a little aspect of that and say that the, the being a partaker of the divine nature at the very basic level means we share with God in running the family kingdom. And we do that, we grow in that, how? By knowing him, getting to know his heart better, getting to know who he is, getting to know what he's excited about, getting to know what he's passionate about and what motivates him. So how does that happen? It happens because when you were born again, you were given a new heart. Because your spirit was born again. Your spirit is one with the spirit of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, it's not on there. And it was created perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. Why? Because what goes on in your heart ultimately determines what comes out of your mouth and in your actions. Proverbs 23, 7 says this, 
As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. This is why law didn't work. This is why law could only constrain sin and tell us how bad we were. So we needed a better covenant, a New Testament. Why? Because we needed to have our hearts changed so we could think differently. We needed our hearts changed so our desires changed. And having had that, we need to then look after those hearts. We need to guard them. Proverbs um, 4.23 says, um, guard your hearts with all diligence, for out of, it flows, out of your heart flows the issues of life. We've got to look after what is going on in our hearts. And the way our hearts grow into the fullness of what's been deposited in them is to get to know God. Because his spirit that lives within us is the fullness of who he is. So we want to, to, to move and live from that place. And we'll only do that if we understand what that heart is. God gave us a letter of wishes to go with the inheritance. And our letter of wishes is he's written his desires on our hearts. He's put his heart on her heart. Are you getting this? This is massive. I, I love the message version of this, uh, of Ephesians 4.24. I'll, I'll read you it from the screen. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it and then take on an entirely new way of life a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God actually reproduces his character in you. God accurately reproducing who he is in you. Why? Because he's written on your heart his letter of wishes. He's written on your heart his heart. Our journey as believers, our journey into faith, our journey in standing on a firm foundation is to know God's love and passion and heart for us. You know, it shouldn't be a surprise when, when you say these things. It shouldn't be a surprise that, that this is part of the new covenant. It shouldn't be a surprise that this was God's plan all along. Why? Because he prophesied it. He said, this is what I'm going to do. That, that passage in Hebrews that, that I read earlier quotes a passage from Ezekiel. I'll, I'll read you the original passage. Ezekiel 36, uh, 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. What have you got? You've got a new spirit, a new heart. So this is God prophesying it and then he did it. That's what Hebrews is saying. Then he did it. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh or a soft heart, a, a heart that's, that's like my heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and you will keep my judgments and do them. In the Old Testament, under the law, they couldn't quite get that. When we talk about now keeping God's judgments and doing them, we bring God's judgments to earth because we bring the kingdom to earth. We are the ultimate carriers of the kingdom of Christ. So what is in heaven should be starting to get reflected 
here on earth, through us. You know, it's possible for every believer to know God. That's not know about God, that means know God, to really know him, to really get him, to really get what he's about, to really get his heart in things, and then to live from that place. Now, that's far better than these guys had in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. You know, in the Old Covenant... You know, what it says is that we've been given a better covenant since we can know God. That's why our covenant's better. We can know God. We can know that, that how he feels about things. We can know how he feels about things that aren't written down in here because they weren't happening then. We can know how he feels about what's in the news. We can know how he feels about what we read on the internet. We can know how he feels about what Auntie Florrie or cousin whatever's put on Facebook or if you're really young and trendy on Instagram or whatever it is, Snapchat now or whatever the next thing is. And we can know how God feels about it. And we can respond from that place. Why? Because we've got his heart. He's got our, he's got our hearts and we've got his heart. You can't write rules that cover every circumstance. You can't write rules that cover every crisis. You can't write rules that cover every up and down in life or economic downturn or economic upturn or political change or Brexit or um, marriages, deaths, divorces. You can't write rules that cover it all. But you can know what God's heart is in it. And we are carriers of God's heart, not carriers of his rules. I'm going to boil God's letter of wishes down to a really simple sentence. That's all you need to know. Okay? If you, if you get this, you'll know how to go about everything. Galatians 5, 6, and it's, it's, I can't remember whether I put a slide on for it or not. I don't think I did deliberately. Galatians 5, 6 says this. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Here's my question. How much do we do that isn't faith working through love? You see, you can have faith and it'll work for you, but it doesn't count. 1 Corinthians 13 says you can move mountains. You can have faith that moves mountains and prophesy all things, and it still counts for nothing if you haven't got love. Because faith works through love. You see, we don't just need to know what we've been blessed with in our inheritance. We need to know how to use it through love. A lot of people just want to be blessed. 
That's called self-centeredness. You can't build a gospel like that. Now, get this. It's not that God doesn't desire to bless us. What he wants us to be is what? Grown-up children who know his heart and use what he's given us through love. Why? Because he is love. That is why, for the last 11 years, Shevel and I have talked so much about faith life, being a family who were rooted and grounded in love. We have no interest whatsoever in building an organized church. That doesn't mean we exclude organization and good planning. What it means is what we want and what we're working for and why we keep saying it over and over again is that we are meant to be a family who are rooted and grounded in love. And that's how everything works. If you get away from that anchor point, whatever you do counts for nothing. There are so many people doing so much that will count for nothing. And you know, every time some believer or another believer gets in strife and unforgiveness and bitterness with another believer, we wreck that. And God says, you can be, you can be totally justified in your anger towards that person, but you're still wrong. And what's more, everything you do for me will count for nothing. Why? Because you're not doing it through love. And that's why it's so precious that we are a family who loves each other. Now, it would be so easy for us then to make a switch and go, therefore, the, the, church, the leaders in the church, or Mark and Cheryl, whoever, or we need to employ somebody to do this, they're going to come up with love initiatives. And we can organize love and Every time anybody in the whole world needs anything, it's down to the leadership to organize to do something loving towards them. You can probably see two things there. You can see how stupid that would be, but you can also think, but perhaps that's how we behave. Because the responsibility to love is not a church body responsibility. It is the responsibility of every individual in the church body to love the one in front of them. The one who is there in front of them. You cannot organize love. The same way as you can't legislate grace. We either are people who love or we're not people who love. But we can't just put that onto the church. Because if we put that onto the church, we're going to go from church to church to church saying that they don't organize love in the way I want love organizing. Let me tell you this. The best way to receive love is to give it to somebody. The best way you can receive love is to give yours to somebody. Ah, oh, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I have all these needs. and Well, 
Go and help somebody. You'll find that you're fulfilled and you receive love in return. I read a book years ago by, and I think it was by a writer I haven't seen around for a while called Gordon MacDonald. And he used to do, I think he used to write about organizing your internal world and stuff like that, organizing, I, I don't know, all sorts of stuff. But this is what he said. What is the one thing the church has to offer that the world cannot obtain or see anywhere else? What's the one thing that the church has to offer that they can't get anywhere else? Look around this room. 99% of what is here, the, the, the church, people can get anywhere else. They can go and pay for it somewhere else. What they can't find anywhere else is agape love. Love that loves without merit. When God said love, we're not aiming to love because somebody earned our love or somebody deserved our love. Basically, I'll tell you right now, they might deserve it today, but at some point next week or next month, they won't. And that's why relationships get in such a mess these days. Because we're trying to give a love that is the wrong sort of love. You see, there's four different types of love in the Bible, in the New Testament mentioned. I'm not going to talk about two of them, but I'm going to talk about one here. One's called phileo love. Phileo love is, I love Roger. I love Olive. I love Phil. I love Ange. Why? Because we've got common interests. We get along. I know them. We've done the journey for a long time together. I love Les. I love Joyce. And there's a relationship. Now, if love stops at that, the minute that something goes wrong in that relationship, the love stops. Yeah? You know, you do what I want, I'll love you. I'll do what you want. You love me. That's not the sort of love that God's talking about. That's not the sort of love that, that God has. He has that sort of love, but it's encompassed in something much bigger. And that much bigger is called agape love. And agape says, I love you whatever you do to me. I love you whether you deserve it or not. I love you whether I'm upset with you or not. And because I love you that way, we're going to find a way to get past the upset. We're going to find a way to put this together again. We're going to make, find a way to make this work. And that, that's the sort of love that God's trying to create in us. Here's a little phrase I want you to, you can write down. So if you've got your pens, love is God's signature. And grace makes love strong. Love is God's signature and grace makes love strong. Agape love is born from and based in grace. That's its expression. How do I know that? Because 
in 1 John, it says, this is how we know what agape love is, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He loved us when we didn't deserve anything. That's how, that sort of love that God has written on our hearts in his letter of wishes. Here's the point. You don't have to be a Christian to love. I know that, that might, we might be self-deluded, but you don't have to be a Christian to love. Most people love in some ways. You don't need to follow Christ to do loving things or act loving. You don't need to be a Christian to feed the poor. You don't need to be a Christian to donate to a charity or make a meal or care for somebody or do some shopping for somebody or take them a meal when they can't get out of the house or, or just call in when just so they've got somebody who visits them. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. They're not the one thing that we have that the world can't get elsewhere. You see, it's not just important that we love, as in do those acts and do those things, which we should do. But it's a particular type of delivery system of those things that makes it count. You see, it's love or acts of love, actions of love wrapped in grace. The defining quality God is looking for is love that flows by grace, received and grace given. You see, why is that so important? Because as believers, we can forget what covenant we're under. And we can love out of obligation. And we can love because we think that's what God demands of us. And we can do all those things because we think that's what makes us a better Christian. And God says, counts for nothing, folks. Because I'm asking you to love. Because you know that you're not earning anything from me. You're not doing it to get my approval. You're doing it because I already approve of you. I already love you. And you're taking what I have put in you and giving it away. That's love wrapped in grace. John Ortberg in the something I was reading last year, says it like this. Living in grace, remembering grace, keeps love alive. Losing touch with grace, forgetting that I am loved because God is a gracious God and loves me before I loved him, is a love killer. It kills real unselfish love. Spiritual, spirituality wrongly understood produces people who mistake their lack of real love for superior righteousness. I'll read that again. Spirituality wrongly understood produces people who mistake their lack of real love for superior righteousness. Everybody talks about being righteous. Everybody talks about, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, we've got to do this. 
It's not God's agenda. God's agenda is real love. In the New Testament, the one who loves keeps all the law. Well, that's strange, isn't it? I thought Jesus kept all the law. Yeah, he did. But love's much bigger than law. See, I don't cheat on Cheryl because there's a rule that says I shouldn't commit adultery. I don't cheat on Cheryl because I love her. And, you know, if I came home and, and I said, well, you know, I really do love you because, you know, I haven't, I haven't cheated on you and, and I haven't looked too, well, not too much at other ladies. Well, maybe, yeah, not, not really any, in any sort of serious way, but, you know, so I've kept this side of the rule and, and I haven't done anything and, you know, generally I'm kind of doing all the things you want me to do, Cheryl, so I really love you. I don't think our relationship would last that long if that's the basis that, that I describe my love for Cheryl with. My love for Cheryl is much bigger than that. That relationship I've just described is called law. Law will not take you as far as love will take you. This is Hortberg again. When Jesus explained it rightly, that is love wrapped in grace, people left everything, gave up their possessions, sacrificed their careers, renounced past behavior, accepted persecution, and they did it with joy. They did it laughing and weeping and high-fiving and dancing because they were loved in spite of themselves. They did it because they were convinced that here and last was the pearl of great price, the winning lottery ticket. This, at long last, was it. Love wrapped in grace. The only thing that counts is Faith working through a particular type of love that is agape love, love wrapped in grace that gives and gives and gives and keeps flowing from the heart of God when we don't want to love. When we want to stop, when we want to say, that's it, I'm done, had enough of that. The love of God keeps on loving. have the worship team back up we'll go back to that song the last one we sang you see why is this thing so important well it's really important for us as believers but i want you to take a bigger look at it read any news social media whatever it will tell you the same story of how the world sees us as Christians. The world is fed up with Christians who proclaim they have the right beliefs, they have the truth, they're committed to the right values, they claim to know all the answers, but in whom there is no grace. The world is sick of religious Christians. What they want to see is Christians who show them God's heart. He has a heart written through with mercy and 
grace. A heart written through with love, a passionate, jealous love for every single person, whatever they've done. And he came and he died on a cross for them before they even wanted him because that's the sort of love he has. And yet we want the world to join some sort of crazy club where we just want to regulate their lives. I wouldn't join that club. That's not the Jesus I fell in love with. And I don't want it to be the one that you do either. You see, we carry a really precious message. That's why it's so important that we are rooted and grounded in love. But until the rest of the church, until the people around us and others hear that and stop coming and, and going after the world and telling the world how bad it is and we've got the answers and we're the right ones and we've got the doctrine and we've got the creeds and we've got the rules, it won't work. Because the only thing that counts is faith working through agape, love wrapped in it's the only foundation on which to build anything. And we need to get our, we need to tell our brothers and sisters that. If we've got it, we need to tell our brothers and sisters that. We need to start a love revolution, an agape revolution. Because it's the only thing that matters in God's opinion. And what is more, he's written it on our hearts. If we would just look inside we would find it there. And in finding it there, we could give it away. Amen. Let's stand.